This weekend, we are coming away from Thanksgiving and into the Christmas season. And of course, when we think about these two seasons, we think about them in many ways related to food. Now, of course, there are many other aspects to them and many more important aspects, but food is always associated with Thanksgiving and Christmas. As a matter of fact, every year, Whenever December rolls around, I know my wife will be down in the kitchen making peanut butter balls, my favorite. As a matter of fact, if I eat a peanut butter ball any other time of the year, some people call it a buckeye, I immediately get a little bit of that feeling of Christmas. Now, that's because of the strong association with the month to food. Imagine if I were to tell you right now that here's our goal, to go from now until Christmas without eating anything. Let's fast through the month of December. Now, I know if I seriously suggested that, you people would just simply turn off the sermon right now. Why? Because what's the point? You say to yourself, I might at least diet in January, but I certainly am not going to fast in December. Why? Because this isn't the season for fasting. It's the season for enjoying the richest of foods as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, I want us to look at a text in Luke chapter 5 that deals with the idea of fasting and celebration. It is a story that we find when Jesus and his disciples are confronted by people who want to know why they don't act the way other religious leaders act, particularly in the area of fasting. Let's read that text. It's in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. Listen as I read from God's Word. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, or he says the old is good. Thus ends the reading of our text. When we study God's Word, we need His help. And so we pray and ask for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the joy uh, that this season brings. We thank you to be able to celebrate Thanksgiving. Even if we celebrate it with fewer people than uh, we normally do, it is good to take time to be thankful for you have done so much for us. And we are glad to come into this season of Advent where we prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that your Spirit will be with us and help us during this time of excitement and anticipation. O Lord, I 
pray even now as we read from Your Word that Your Spirit will teach us and help us, that You will change us, and that You will use me to speak in a way that encourages Your people and builds them up and gives glory to You, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this text today, I want us to look at it under three headings. The first thing is I want us to see that Jesus is saying that fasting during his life and ministry is inconceivable. And secondly, I want us to see that the whole ministry of Jesus is incompatible with the practices that fasting represented Uh, to the Jewish leaders that were asking him these questions. And lastly, I want us to see that the message, the ministry that Jesus brings is an acquired taste. So let's look at those one at a time in the text. First of all, we want to look at this response of Jesus's that shows that fasting is inconceivable uh, given the nature of his ministry. Notice the illustration that Jesus uses. He says, listen, whenever you have a wedding and the bridegroom is there, the people who hang out with him aren't fasting, but of course implied, they're celebrating. And we all know about that if we've ever been to a wedding. Just uh, last September, uh, we were excited after three plans to finally celebrate the marriage of our son to a wonderful young woman. And during that week, we fasted over and over again. We fasted in a lovely meal to get to know her parents and family better. We fasted with all of our friends and relatives that came in from out of town for a rehearsal dinner. And then we really fasted after the wedding was over to celebrate God's goodness in the wedding. You see, a wedding is a time of fasting, and it would really be sort of in poor taste, to sit there and refuse to eat. By doing so, you would be refusing to enter into the joy of this couple and celebrating their marriage together. Jesus is saying, just as inconceivable as it is to fast during a wedding, it's inconceivable to fast during the ministry of Jesus. Now, why is that? Why does he use this illustration? Well, we can understand why he uses this illustration when we understand uh, what Jesus and his ministry really is. If you remember from a few weeks back or just a few chapters back, when Jesus came into his ministry and he read a passage of Scripture in Nazareth, he read a passage from the prophet Isaiah. And he read a passage that talked about the salvation that was coming from God. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus understood his ministry, that he himself was a fulfillment of that promised salvation that God had had promised in the Old Testament through Isaiah. And in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, we see that that salvation sometimes was even referred to as a wedding. Listen to this verse. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as 
the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Here, God is talking about the salvation that He's going to bring to His people. And He says that He is going to be, God Himself is going to be like a bridegroom that rejoices over His bride. In the New Testament, of course, uh, we see that the church, those who believe in Jesus and follow Him, that they are called the bride of Christ. You see, Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom who brings salvation. So fasting would be out of place. It also helps us to understand why it would be out of place when we consider the reason, particularly the, the Pharisees fasted. They fasted on generally on Mondays and Thursdays. And they prayed. What did they pray about as they fasted? They prayed that God would deliver the nation of Israel. Jesus is saying, what you've been fasting and praying about is here. The bridegroom has come, and it's me. And I'm telling you about the salvation in my teaching and in my ministry. You see, he's telling them something deep and true about the nature of who he was and what he was doing. Fasting just didn't fit in. It was inconceivable in that context. You see, Jesus is saying that Jesus in his ministry is a fulfillment of everything they had been hoping for, praying for, fasting for. So how inappropriate would it be to be fasting in light of the actual fulfillment being present. And so this is the language that he uses. Now he says there will be a time of fasting. And what does he say that time is? It is when the bridegroom is taken away. Can you imagine being at a wedding, being there the few days before the wedding is happening, and then you find out that the bridegroom has suddenly become seriously ill, or been in an accident, or uh, been taken away some way, kidnapped, or something of the nature, it would be moving from the heights of joy to the devastation of sorrow. Why? Because it, the, it's the happiest of times when a wedding is happening, and it would be the most sorrowful of times if that bridegroom were taken away. He said that something like that is going to happen to people who are excited, who understand who Jesus is and what He has come to do. When He is taken away, there will be fasting. Now, to be honest, writers debate about what this is referring to. Some say it's only referring to the time between Jesus' death and His resurrection, which would, have, of course, only be a few days. Others believe it actually has reference to the time we're living in now, the time between the ascension of Jesus into heaven until He comes again. And perhaps that does make more sense. Jesus is saying there will be a time of fasting, but as this text continues to show us, it won't be just like the fasting that the religious leaders of His day were doing. It'll be a fasting not longing for some unrevealed salvation to come from God, 
but to await the salvation that has been revealed and will be consummated in Jesus Christ. And so that's why sometimes Christians use the discipline of fasting even today to concentrate on uh, the Savior that they long for, to simply meditate on God's Word and pray that they will be filled with the joy of Jesus Christ even as they wait. So it is a good and healthy practice, but it shouldn't be used in the way that it was used uh, by the religious leaders uh, of that day. And so this is helpful for us because it informs us that Jesus is a fulfillment of what many people long for, which we'll be talking about more and more during this time of Advent. But secondly, I want us to look at perhaps uh, where the weight of the text falls, and that is on the incompatibility of Jesus and his ministry with what came before. That's why he uses these two, what's called here, parables. Now, that word parable uh, can be translated uh, riddle, you know, proverb. And so here Jesus is trying to say something that is a truism, and he's using that to illustrate a deeper spiritual reality. And what is this truism? That you don't patch an old garment with a new one. In other words, you wouldn't take your brand new shirt or your brand new dress and rip a piece of it out in order to patch up some old dress or old shirt. And that's what he's saying. Because, of course, if you do that, you will destroy both of them. Because the thing you rip the patch off of won't be complete because it's got a piece of fabric that's missing from it. And the one you apply it to won't look right because the pattern, the material, simply won't match. What he's saying is that if you try to merge this new thing that Jesus is doing with the old thing that had always been going on and was going on at the time of his ministry, that they would be incompatible. They simply do not go together. And trying to mix them ensures the mutual destruction of each. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Now, I know this may strike you uh, rather forcefully, and you say, wait a second, I thought that people like you, Chris, say oftentimes that uh, what Jesus does and the New Testament is a fulfillment of what the Old Testament uh, talked about, and that's exactly right. But just because it's a fulfillment doesn't mean it's identical. There is a discontinuity between uh, the ministry of the gospel and the promises that we find in the Old Testament. It's not negating or lessening those things. It's simply saying that God has, in his providence, fulfilled their purpose, which is, of course, why Christians don't follow uh, what we call in the Old Testament uh, the civil law or the ceremonial law because they have been completely fulfilled in Jesus. And so to try to take all of that practice that was pointing to Jesus and still carry it out in light of Jesus would actually be destroying both what uh, the promise was and destroying this great fulfillment that Jesus brings. 
And so why is this so important? Well, it's important because in the early church, they were struggling with this. As a matter of fact, if you go to the beginning of Luke, it says that this book and, of course, uh, Luke's later work called Acts uh, of the Apostles are both written to someone called Theophilus. Now, of course, his name, that name Theophilus means a lover of God. And so it may be a general thing referring to anyone who loves God, but most believe it's actually being written to a person. And that person was probably someone that would have been called, uh, as you know, we see in Acts, a God-fearer. A God-fearer is a Gentile who is attracted to the Word of God and the presence of God in the worship of His people, the Jews. And so even though they were Gentiles, they basically hung around the synagogue because they loved the teaching and they learned love. They, they love learning more about God. Many of those Gentile God-fearers became Christians when they heard about the fulfillment of all that the New Testament was talking about in Jesus Christ. But that left them with a pretty fundamental question. So what do we do now? Do we keep doing all the practices that we were doing before? Do we not do any of those practices? What do we do? As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, we see this discussion back and forth between Gentiles who were coming into faith in Christ, but coming out of this Jewish heritage. You have to bring all of that baggage with you, or is uh, Christianity something new? And see, this was a huge discussion. So here, Jesus is teaching to show that in fact, what he is bringing is something new. Not new and different, but new and fulfillment. And so it's very important. And I want to take a step uh, beyond that to talk about how that applies uh, to me and to you. Now, of course, none of us uh, were Old, uh, Old Testament God-fearers necessarily, but we sometimes still try to make Christianity compatible with incompatible systems. You see, any system that suggests that we are going to be right with God in any way other than through faith in Jesus Christ and His work, His life, His death alone, anything that seems to add to or take away anything from that central truth is simply incompatible. By trying to add something to the good news of Jesus or taking away from the good news of Jesus actually destroys the good news of Jesus. And it destroys the thing you're trying to add to it or take away from it. Now you say, I would never do a thing like that. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we begin to think to ourselves, well, I need to believe in Jesus and continue to do everything right. And if I don't do everything right, maybe God still won't accept me. Or we think maybe, even though I believe in Jesus, if I've done a bunch of things wrong, which is just looking at it from the other direction, that then maybe God won't love me. But do you see, in those cases, we're adding something 
to the good news. The good news is you don't do anything. You don't do anything. Jesus has done all that is necessary to make us right with God. How? He did it by living a perfect life, which none of us ever have. He did it by going to a cross and bearing there the penalty that sin deserves. That penalty we could not pay. He paid. And he rose from the dead to show indeed that the penalty had been paid so that we can now have the righteousness, the obedience that was present in Jesus applied to our account because he took all of the sin that was due to our account on himself in the cross. This is called a glorious exchange. This is the good news. I can't add anything to it. And if I do, I make it bad news. And so this, I think, is still an issue that we constantly are trying to bring in incompatible systems into the good news about Jesus. For Jesus, he won't have any part of it. But then there's this third issue that I want us to talk about more briefly. And that is this issue of the acquired taste. This is an interesting line at the end of this text that is only in Luke when he says, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And here what Jesus is addressing is this reality that people tend to resist the new. People tend to resist it. Why, you say? Because it's new. They say, wait, that's new. I only take familiar. I only like something I'm used to. And so just the fact that it's new makes it bad. That's called a natural conservatism. But of course, what Jesus is saying is something deeper. It's not just that they're used to something old and therefore mistrust the new, but it is that unless something happens, they will not be able to taste the beauty and benefit of this new thing, the gospel that comes in Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that unless something happens to our taste, our spiritual taste, which is called our heart, then we will always prefer the old way. And for us, that old way is working like a dog, thinking that God will love us and accept us more the more perfect we are or the harder we work. And that's simply something we're used to from birth. You think about it. I have said this to some of you many times, but how is it that a child does well in school? You say, well, they work hard. If they work hard and do their homework, then they'll make the good grade. They'll have the opportunities. Or how does the young person in a new job advance? And of course, we say because they work hard. They make lots of relationships. They network, you know, and they can continue to grow and they, they get more and more responsibility and better and better jobs. And we think that spirituality works the same way. The harder we work, the more that we, more people we know, the better we will do. But of course, the gospel is completely incompatible with that kind of understanding. We just don't prefer grace. Why? Because it offends us. It offends that sense in ourselves that we can do it by ourselves. Jesus says we will never prefer it unless a change happens in our heart. It's only then 
that when we taste this new message, which is eternally new, the good news of Jesus, that we will say that is the best tasting, the sweetest, the most satisfying thing that I have ever, ever heard of in my life. And that's important for all of us, isn't it? We need God's help and the movement of His Spirit so that we will desire the new. Now, for those of us who have believed this good news, who've embraced it and who have lived it, we sometimes slip back into the old, just like putting on old, comfortable clothes. But when we do that, we need to recognize that it is simply incompatible with the gospel. We need to do what the Bible calls repent, which means to have a change of mind, a change of direction. We need to move away from that to celebrate the reality that we are made right with God only in and through Christ and then continue to pursue our life along that line alone. You see, this is what Jesus is saying, that He and His kingdom are fundamentally different than what people expected and were used to. Why? Because it's a fulfillment of all that they had been hoping for. May God continue to enable us to enjoy and savor this new wine of the gospel that Jesus brings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for giving us your word. We're thankful that Jesus has come, the new wine, Lord, that satisfies not only once but forever. Oh Lord, I pray that you will forgive us for those many times we have trodden down uh, well-practiced and comfortable paths of thinking and thought that you would like us better or accept us more, uh, more keenly because of how hard we work or how much we do or what we stay away from, but that we will recognize that has nothing to do with the good news of the gospel. I pray, O oh Lord, that we will relish the celebration of all that we have been given in Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. It is a great privilege uh, to be able to come uh, to you each week with a message from God's Word. Starting next week, we are going to be looking at passages uh, that get our hearts and minds ready for the celebration of Christmas. Uh, in the Christian world, we call that uh, the Advent season. And so I hope you'll join us for that. Of course, we always like hearing from you. Please drop us an email or get in touch with us. Uh, the information is all on our website that's listed for you here, and we would love to hear from you. Meanwhile, I want you to uh, finish our time uh, today with a blessing that comes from God's Word. This blessing is from number six. Hear this blessing uh, from God to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.